This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to cover the book, Homo Deus, by Yuval Noah Harari. (laughs) I'm just looking at your show notes now. Oh, wow. We both read this one, so this is going to be a bit of a freewheeling discussion, but I'm going to turn this over to Eric in terms of who recommended this book and why it wound up on our list. Yeah, Richard Branson is the the person who recommended this one, and I, I'm pretty sure he is a virgin. Sources sources tell me. Sources suggest, despite the fact that he has children. So I, I don't know how to I don't know how to explain that one, but so my sources, I got, I got to go back to them. Uh, but no, if you don't know who Richard Branson is, um, do yourself a favor. And he's got quite a few books out there uh, about his his rise to fame. And, and the thing, uh, I, I read one of them uh, probably 15 years ago. And, and the thing I really liked about him is he just did, did, uh, did things very differently. Um, he he did things in uh, you know no, nothing you would ever read in a, a business book on how to get a business started. So um, pretty pretty funny to read those books. Then if we're going uh, to the about the author, yeah, give us a little bit about the author. Uh, interesting dude. Yeah, he's a, a an Israeli historian, a tenured professor in the Department of History at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. One of his uh, uh, places where he studied was Jesus College in Oxford. And um, are you sure that's not Jesus College? Jesus, um, I spent six weeks of my life there. So you're at pretty Jesus sure. College, and uh, those are some of the best weeks of my life. Another famous alumni of uh, Jesus College, Oxford, was Lawrence of Arabia. So um, one. Kind of interesting thing about about Yuval Noah Harari is that he takes thirty days or more per year and a complete vacation. But he he does meditation and then gets rid of all electronics and everything. So it's it's like thirty days of of I, I guess intense meditation. Um, and as of September two thousand seventeen, he got rid of his his smartphone. So he's. Uh, He's away from technology, but he, he, I guess it allows him to, to, to write quite well about it as we'll see in our discussion. Yeah. And, 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 it's, and that doesn't actually surprise me when you read this, you can see that he's very suspicious about the direction that things are presently going yeah. and is not real confident that, uh, that our technological progress is leading, leading us where we actually want to go. And so it's not surprising that he's kind of put his money where his mouth is and has decided to step away from some of that. And that kind of leads into uh, my overview of being really torn by this book. And I I think because of what you just said of, of uh, kind of a, a future you don't want to see happen uh, as part of his description, but then 
also really being amazed at what he's talking about and, and kind of thinking of the possibilities of the future. And so there, there was a, a love-hate relationship I, I had with this book as I was as I was going through with it. Um, what about you? Uh, just kind of initial thoughts uh, while reading the book. Well, it was a very provocative book, uh, written I think in a tone that's designed to be very provocative. I mean, he he's he does cite a lot of material and all, and all that, but he takes he takes a hard line uh, on. Of argumentation, you know, he he specifically has directions he wants to go, and even where perhaps certain consensus are not quite as uh, uh, as much of a consensus as he indicates, he's gonna he's gonna take that in the direction that he wants to because it's it's helpful for his argument, and so in some cases that can be a little frustrating, mm-hmm. uh, but there are definitely moments of this book where it is brilliant uh it is very thought-provoking he's almost certainly right uh in a number of these places where you're like man that that's really well stated really well thought out and then there's those other moments where you're like i'm not exactly sure you're considering this whole thing all the way around and then there are the other moments where it's like i'm not sure what you actually think here because it appears to me that based on your recognition of the of the mis- of the problems of this particular perspective earlier the hard line that you're taking here seems a little bit off but it does seem like it's serving a purpose to to serve as a warning so i'm not exactly sure where where you're coming from but it's worth you know reading this for the uh, as a as an irritant if nothing else in some of those places so i i found it a, to be a very useful book a provocative book and a very smart book mhm mhm well, let me give a, uh, a synopsis and see if you agree with with my basic understanding of, of his main points. Number one, God is dead Wrong. and nature abhors a vacuum. <laughs> Man is filling said vacuum Man? and technology will speed the process. What about women? Well, homo. Oh, okay. Man. Got you. Yeah. Is, you that, uh, is that kind of the... Yeah. Synopsis so, you got. Yeah, I mean I think I think you're you're working working in the right direction there. And you know the, the the presumption is that that he's definitely working in a Nietzschean direction here. And, and and it's not so much that he's working in a Nietzschean direction so much as he's presuming that society has been working in that direction. So he's going to f- pull this thread out in the direction that he thinks things are going. And yeah. from that perspective he's saying, "Okay, God is dead." So there has to be something that fills the vacuum of meaning. And it's not so much that nature abhors a, a vacuum. It's that there, human beings have to have something by which to live. So ultimately humanity has to figure out a new way to insert meaning into the world. And technology is speeding that process of, of needing a new way to add meaning to the world and also provides a lot of problems that we have not really grappled with adequately as we're looking looking forward into the future so so yeah definitely yeah so in, from from there the basic premise from which he works from this in this book is upgrading humans through data and algorithms will turn humans into gods so homo deus will have godlike abilities such as longevity decisions acquiring powers of creation and destruction yeah, and, and, and uh, I would, the, I would, I would amend that just slightly. I would say that it's not so much that 
human beings will have godlike abilities. He's saying that at this point, basically, uh, and, and this is the first chapter, is he says, look, we're at a point where we're no longer having to, to deal with all of these past problems of starvation and epidemics and you know constant wars and all of this for the mo- for the vast majority of the of of the population of the world those are past problems that have already been fixed now what what do we place our sights on in terms of the next problems to solve and he says well the the direction that things are going is the attempt to basically make ourselves into gods and he says that's mm-hmm. the direction that this is going he expresses his doubt as to whether or not there are a number of places where you, you can see his, when he actually steps back from the narrative itself that he's setting up and saying, this is where things are going. When he steps back a few times, there are a few times where he says, personally, you know, I actually don't think that this is going to work quite this way. I'm, I'm skeptical about X, but he he's presenting this as the direction, as the trajectory that things are on. Yeah. Yeah, and that was one thing. I, I, it was hard for me to know what he actually believed, and and I, I, I mentioned that when when I was first reading the book to you, and and, and you said uh, part of that might be on purpose, just to for that not to become the issue of well, what does he personally believe? But is is this part of the narrative that he's that he's putting forth? And yeah, so I, I absolutely think that that's what he's doing here. I, I think if you cornered him and asked him his views on a couple of these things, he'd say, yeah, I, I actually don't agree with the current consensus on where that is, but that's where that's the, that's the way that that's the assumptions that are baked into how we're doing things. So if I'm going to write this book about where the future is going, then I need to, I need to operate from that assumption. Mm-hmm. And, and there are a number of places where I think he does that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know we'll get into some of those because, as you said, some of those were were difficult or infuriating. And then um, <laughs> other others of them were uh, really thought provoking as well. So. And, uh, and, and by the way, his his basic idea here of, you know, we will now upgrade humans into gods and turn homo sapiens into homo deus. This is this is actually. As I mentioned already, this is basically restating Nietzsche, Nietzsche's expectation, or expectation, that is, expectation, geez, it's getting late, uh, his expectation of the rise of Ubermenschen, right, of supermen. And, uh, and, and this is where, you know, one of the later quotes of the book is, uh, once technology allow, enables us to re-engineer human minds, homo sapiens will disappear, and human history will come to an end and, com- and a completely new kind of process will begin, which people like you and me cannot comprehend. And this is basically the Nietzschean, the Nietzschean idea of Ubermenschen that are going to, that this is the next evolutionary step hmm. beyond our current species of, of uh, homo, homo sapiens or sapiens, as you usually hear it said, um, you're, that it's going to be, uh, it's going to basically once you allow for certain for basically for for the uh for natural selection and evolution to take it take its uh its course and a a form beyond us is going to emerge and then you know we will be secondary to that and it didn't happen the way that nietzsche expected but basically uh harari is in is 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 bringing this back and saying well it didn't. It didn't work. You had the Nazis, for example, that came in and tried to make this happen via 
killing off the weak and the people that they believed were inferior in order to speed the direction toward Ubermenschen, which, you know, would have, uh, would have been in fulfillment of what Nietzsche was saying. So that hasn't happened and it's not going to happen as far as we can tell, you know, knock on wood. Uh, but we, we might end up going in that same direction by the basic direction of our technology and research because of augmentation and all of this other stuff. And so he's, he's really developing some of these ideas of Nietzsche saying, okay, it didn't happen quite the way that he was expecting there, but we might actually be on the track that Nietzsche was expecting. That's a lot mm -hmm. of how I read a lot of this. Yeah. And, and, uh, a, a, another side of it, we go back to Kahneman again, where, uh, and we've seen a lot of him this year, but, uh, Harari talking about him and, and, and especially about the way that we, we remember things. And uh, so our experiencing self versus, versus our remembering self. So uh, the remembering self, we often remember things incorrectly. Uh, but if we're looking forward and, and integrating technology more into our lives, we may not have to rely on that remembering self. And then the uh, algorithms and, and different parts of technology will help help us in our decision making to where we're, we're kind of becoming one with technology to where we're not, we're not just relying on our, our natural uh, human capabilities anymore, but, but combining them with technology to, to create this super person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the ways that he actually interacts with how that changes things is, uh, and this is, this is, you know, Kahneman's uh, experiments on this and his discussion of that is that generally speaking, human beings have uh, the, the decision making that we, we tend to tend to have or tend to uh, operate according to is we, we uh, favor the remembering self over the experiencing self. So mm -hmm. even though the, even though an experience was worse, if it ended better, we may remember it better than the better experience. And if we were given a choice, we would choose the worst one because we remember it differently than because of the way it ended. And so, you know, this is the idea that we, we uh, don't always choose in our own self-interest in terms of what we would actually enjoy in terms of experience. And so mm -hmm. that would change potentially our, our, the way that we make our decisions. Yeah. So the final thing I wanted to cover in the overview is just the fact that I have heard a lot of the ideas from this book. And I think they are from this book. There, there have been a few books that we've read over the past few years for the Books of Titans where you know that that is kind of the source. So anytime you're listening to a podcast and they're talking about these ideas, I, those ideas came uh, – some, some of the ideas came from this this book. So it, it was one of those types of books where I've, I've, I've seen it like, oh, all over the Oh, that's where people are getting that. <laughs> Yeah. So very impactful book. And it's one of those that you might want to just read just for that purpose, because you're, you're going to see these ideas in a lot of places. And if somebody's talking about them, you at least know where they they came from. Yeah. And I'll say up front, this book is worth the read. Uh, mm -hmm. Even if, you know, it will certainly for many in the audience, it will it will provoke you and challenge you in ways that are going to be uncomfortable. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's, it, it, that actually makes it even more valuable for for a lot of readers. Uh, and I mentioned yeah. earlier some of the moments of brilliance uh, in, in this book. You know, there's a great quote, for example. He does a great job of boiling certain things down, certain concepts down. Uh, and <laughs> this one was really striking to me. He says, uh, yeah, in fact, modernity is a surprisingly simple deal. The entire 
modern contract can be summarized in the single phrase, humans agree to give up meaning in exchange for power. And you think about that and it's like, dang, that's, that's actually a pretty good summary of a lot of where we are and a lot of the philosophical deal that we, that, that we've made to be in our position in the current position, you know, well, we're going to sacrifice uh, family and, and religion and all sorts of other things in pursuit of economic growth and the capacity to control and do these things a little bit, you know, do certain things a little bit better and basically giving up meaning for power. And that mm. I, I thought was, it's a, I mean, it's a really pithy, really brilliant statement. And there's a lot of different places where he was able to do that in this book. And, uh, and that, that that's one of the reasons why it's been so influential. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go into our, our favorite quotes. Um, I, <laughs> I have, I could have put dozens of these. Yeah. And I, I've, I just have a few in this section and then uh, more in um, some of the questions that I've, I have a new section I would like to actually introduce Jason. And this is called Eric's questions for Jason. Oh, yeah. And I actually have a lot of quotes in in that part. Um, just things as I was reading uh, that it's like, is, is this right? Or what, you know, what do you, what do you think? So um, I think that'll actually be a fun, fun section. And then, and, and then we'll get into our, our regular nitty gritty section followed by the conclusion. All right. And I have uh, quotes throughout that, but um, Jason, since you have the more quotes here, do, uh, you want to start out with, with one? Yeah. Um, so maybe my favorite quote from this, from this book, and there's a lot of fun ones in this book is this one. Marx forgot that capitalists know how to read. <laughs> and this is in a bit, this is in his discussion. One of the things that this book that he, he, he talks about how this book is, is not a prediction. Uh, it's, you know, he, he wants to distance from that, but at the same time, it is a prediction. Um, mm-hmm. And actually I would say that this book is, uh, it's an attempt to be, it's a prophetic book in the proper sense of the, of that word. Mm-hmm. So it, it, meaning that it's not a, an attempt to predict the future as much as it is to evaluate the present and, and basically give perspective on where things are going and, and basically looking at possible trajectories of the future, uh, one or two in particular and say, this is where things are going. And if we don't make changes, here's, here's the, here's the direction. And some of these things are not going to be desirable to most people. Mm-hmm. And, and you can see that, that he, he discusses in some places where he says, listen, even if I'm right, if people pay attention to what I'm saying here and then decide that these are not good outcomes and decide to change that. And I turn out wrong, then this book actually worked, which, which that tells you a little bit about what he's trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and which is, is where this, this quote fits in. Right. right? And, and this connects with an earlier quote that he'd had about his per- particular, um, uh, particular aims in this book. He said, this prediction is less of a prophecy and see, I, I, I would argue that actually it is a prophecy in the proper sense. I, when I teach uh, ancient prophecy, when I teach what that is, 
It's more about forth telling or telling, you know, giving perspective, speaking forth perspective on the present than it is about foretelling the future. So I would argue with his terminology here, but in any case, it's less of a prophecy and more a way of discussing our present choices. If the discussion makes us choose differently so that the prediction is proven wrong, all the better. What's the point of making predictions if they cannot change anything? So then he gets to this, and this is where he says, Marx forgot that capitalists know how to read. And I love that quote. He says, at first, only a handful of disciples took Marx seriously and read his writings. But as these socialist firebrands gained adherence and power, the capitalists became alarmed. They, too, perused Das Kapital, adopting many of the tools and insights of, the Mar- of Marxist analysis. As a result, Marx's predictions came to nothing. Communist revolutions never engulfed the leading industrial powers such as Britain, France, and the USA, and the dictatorship of the proletariat was consigned to the dustbin of history. This is the paradox of historical knowledge. Knowledge that does not change behavior is useless, but knowledge that changes behavior quickly chooses its relevance. And I'm combining, by the way, this is a second quote from a little bit later, but I'm combining it with this other one. The more data we have and the better we understand history, the faster history alters its course and the faster our knowledge becomes outdated. But I love that idea that he and and he actually argues that one of the reasons that capitalism and modern, particularly modern uh, democratic capitalism succeeded is because it rolled in the best ideas from ultimately communism and then later on socialism and various things. And it tweaked it's it basically those things got, got added into the mix to mitigate many of the problems that were there in raw capitalism and so on. And as a result, those things didn't, those things in their raw form didn't emerge, but it's because they were adopted by their opponents and, th- and this is a great example of that where, again, Marx made all these predictions and a lot of people don't realize that Marx was not so much trying to stir up rebellion as he was actually predicting that this was inevitable based on where things were going. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, well, Marx, Marx forgot that other people would read what he was saying. Otherwise, if, if he hadn't said it, it might have happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that one was good. I, I, that one stuck out to me as well. Um here's one. I, I thought this was one of the better ones of the book. And I, I'd actually seen this somewhere else and possibly even in one of the other books of Titans books. Uh, but this comes on page 331. Since we do not know how the job market would look in 2030 or 2040, already today, today we have no idea what to teach our kids. Most of what they currently learn at school will probably be irrelevant by the time they are 40. Traditionally, life has been divided in has been divided into two main parts, a period of learning followed by a period of working. Very soon, this traditional model will become utterly obsolete, and the only way for humans to stay in the game will be to keep learning throughout their lives and to reinvent themselves repeatedly. Many, if not most humans, may be un- unable to do so. And that's the quote, and, and, and he actually talks about it further as, as part of this uh, a man becoming God I- idea is that man will live, men and women, man and woman will live longer. And, and if they're living 150 years, they will have to reinvent themselves many times throughout their life. Uh, so that, that was interesting as well. But, it, but I just, I like that, that, you know, traditionally you, you divided your life into two periods, period of learning and then working. But now it's really, you, it's, it's a continual process of learning in, and while you're working so that you're, you're constantly learning new skills. And, and I'm, I'm sure that was true to some degree, but 
I guess you think of, of learning a, a trade in the past, um, uh, maybe accounting, like you, you learn accounting and then you, you can kind of just do that in the, in the same job your whole life. Uh, whereas the, the work I'm doing right now was not even something I could have studied, uh, website development. I, I couldn't have studied that in my undergraduate program. It, it didn't exist. Didn't and, exist. And not, not as such. Um, yeah. And, and this connects actually with the very first podcast, very first book we did. Yeah. The inevitable. Kevin Kelly's The Inevitable, where he talked about how basically it's going to be constantly, uh, it's, it's the, it's the constant, uh, being, a, being an amateur forever and yeah. constant learning and constant education that's going to be necessary in order to move forward. And that's something that he agrees with. And also uh, a book that we're going to be talking about not too long from now, uh, WTF. Uh, by O'Reilly, that that one also addresses that 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 concept as well. Yeah. Okay, I got a few more. Um, let's see. In ancient times, having power meant having access to data. Today, having power means knowing what to ignore. Yeah, we've got an in, over information overload. Yeah, we've got an overabundance of data, and it's learning how to how and what to ignore. That that really makes the difference now. All right, um, I'm going to go to to a third one uh, before I give you another chance here. From 1914 to 1989, a murderous war of religion raged between the three humanist sects, and religion er, and, and liberalism at first sustained one defeat after the other. I love that deliciously provocative, because mm-hmm. most people would not regard. World War One, World War Two, the Korean War, Vietnam, the Cold War, all of this stuff as wars of religion. But I think he makes a very compelling case that they were and that they and that that it's just a matter of not uh, siloing religion into things like Christianity and Judaism and Islam, that there's that human beings are continue. Even, even atheists are religious and in, in terms of how religion functions. And so understanding that helps us understand how these things work. And there's a, there's a very good uh, book actually that dovetails with that idea that is um, that, that actually calls what Harari is re- referring to as religion. It, it actually refers to it as meta religion, uh, which is the title of the book by, by lane. We can go ahead and link to that in the uh, show notes. But that's okay. a, that's a that's a pretty good one that we uh, we ought to bring bring up. Well, in in a quote that ties in with that, he says, "If you tell communists or liberals that they are religious, they think you are accusing them of blindly believing in groundless pipe dreams." So I thought that was a a funny um, uh, connection to what the the one you just read. Yep. So you what you've got quite a few. So you want to tackle a few more. Um, let's see, <laughs> whatever you are today, be it a devout Hindu cricket player or an aspiring lesbian journalist in an upgraded world, you will feel like a Neanderthal hunter in wall street. You won't belong. And this is his point that on the trajectories that we're at, as people continue to augment and use genetic, genetic, uh, 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 engineering and all that stuff to upgrade themselves to be superhuman effectively. Those who are left behind, those who aren't part of that elite group that upgrade themselves to being homo deus, 
th- those those people are going to feel like a Neanderthal on Wall Street would, because we're going to be left behind. It's going to be like a new species. That's his. That's yeah. that, and that's largely the the thesis of the book. Yeah, but I loved I loved his juxtaposition of the devout Hindu cricket player or aspiring lesbian journalist. Yeah, the the other thing I found interesting along those lines was when he was talking about our 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 the emphasis that we place right now on our experience and how much uh, importance every person's experience is or, or the everyone's experience should be important and 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 feelings how you feel is the measure is the is the thing that's going to determine whether or not the decision what what decision should be made right if mm-hmm. you feel if this makes you feel good then that must be the thing the best thing for you but then he he ties that in with so now if you start having algorithms help you make these decisions and you start realizing okay well my feelings are are having me make really poor decisions um if you outsource those to, if you outsource yeah if you outsource those, those right? to to, to AI, those things don't matter anymore, uh, or they don't have the the importance that that is placed on them right now. Uh, so that that got into a very interesting discussion as well. Yeah, basically, he says that the current uh, assumptions of our morality and our ethics today, as you outsource to algorithms, uh, you, you the 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 very the very things that we rest our assumptions on now can't hold. So then what is, what becomes the, the basis for those decisions when, you know, you can change what you are, you know, what your proclivities are, or you can alter your feelings either through genetic engineering or through medication or through, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, implant cognitive stimulation, you know, brain stimulation or whatever, how does that change the way that we imagine what decisions should be made and, and, you know, all of that. So that, that challenges a lot of our current assumptions. Well, and if it, if it, if it all sounds very futuristic, we're, we're already doing it. I mean, if, if, if you use Waze or Google maps, uh, you're, you're giving power to that in a sense of your, at least I do. I mean, I, I put that <laughs> in and I don't, if, if something seems to be wrong or I'm seeming to go in the wrong direction, you I don't would drive even think right off a that. cliff, man. If I was told oh, you to, would, it's the whatever, fastest way, whatever ways tells me to do, I do. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it, we're already doing that. And, and, and that's kind of his point too, is like, we're doing it little by little and, and we don't even realize it, but we're, we're starting to, to give more of our decisions over to, well, you bought this, you, you might like that. Um, Take the, just put in the directions and we'll, we'll get you there. Uh, so little little bits at a time. Yeah, there's a real frog in the frying pan uh, uh, quality to this book where he's saying, this is where things are going. Are, are you aware of where this trajectory ends up? Mm-hmm. So so yeah, there's a lot of that. Uh, and and I, I should mention that he then, uh, I'm going to pull out one other in my favorite quotes because this helps us understand kind of how he how he's thinking about this uh, where he, he actually, he comes out with his own voice uh, for once. It's, it's not, not very, not very common in this book, uh, but let me find it. He says, um, uh, my own view is that the hopes of eternal youth in the 21st century are premature. And whoever takes them seriously is in for bitter, for a bitter disappointment. It is not easy to live knowing that you are going to die. 
but it is even harder to believe in immortality and be proven wrong. And that's an interesting statement. And, and he goes further with that in saying, what are the people as they are starting to realize their more, their mortality and their, their, their failing in their quest of immortality. What is the, what's the, the backlash going to be among those who are mm-hmm. starting to be proven wrong? Cause there's a lot of people, a lot of these elites today truly believe that they can find somehow the, the, the technological equivalent of the fountain of youth. Uh, and I was actually surprised he didn't connect some of this to, you know, the, the, the same quests that we've seen in the past for those very things that led to the age of exploration for some and others, where basically it was then a quest for immortality. And, the, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's not a new thing. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm glad he did state that this is my own view is on that part. Cause the, the other quote that I had in my favorite quote section was we don't need to wait for the second coming in order to overcome death. And, and that, that was one of those frustrating quotes to me because it's, okay, so we live, we can live 50 more years to, to where we're 150 instead of a hundred, but we still die. So what, what it, how, how are you talking about overcoming death? If all we're doing is living 50 more years, yeah, prolonging uh, life does not defeat death. Yeah. So th- that was one frustrating thing. So I'm, I'm glad he did have that part where my own view is, is such and such on that. Cause that was one of those things I was like, uh, all right. I'll, 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 I could go, I could go on with lots of different ones. Um, but I'm going to go with two more. Okay. <laughs> one is, uh, is, is, is he's got some scary well actually you know what i'm just going to go with one more and I'll, I'll roll that one into into some later discussion but one more you cannot settle the greek debt crisis by inviting greek politicians and german bankers to either a fist fight or an orgy <laughs> i think he's i think i think he's pretty much right about that so yeah we'll just we'll just go with that so let's move into uh the next section here my questions for Jason. Oh, God. A good one. Here we go. We need an intro. Uh, intro ditty. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll take the uh, Chicago Bulls entrance music from the 1990s. Thank you. <laughs> All right. First question. Will mankind make it past 120 years of age? Okay. Are we talking about individual human beings? Like the, individual the rare human individual, beings. The rare individual? Or are we talking about on average? The rare, the individual human being, because no matter what article I read of, uh, here's the oldest person alive. It never seems to go past 120. I think the, I think, I think somebody's made it to like 123 or something like that okay. before. If I, if I, if I remember correctly, the the, per, the the person who's lived the longest and at least in recorded history, you know, th- th- of course you've got these king lists and so on of ancient literature where you've got guys living, you know, a thousand years or whatever, but you know, in in recorded history, you, you, the, I think like 123 is the uh, uh, is the oldest person. Uh, I think that's 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 about how. Yeah, I'm, I just looked it up actually. Uh, Gene Calment uh, died at the age of 122 in 64 days. So I'll say yeah. Um, somebody at different points may make it a little bit past 120, but I don't think by much. And I don't think actually that that's going to change anytime soon. I, I suspect that in a hundred years, the 
the the oldest people alive will still be right in that 120 year range. Uh, mm-hmm. that, I, I I just suspect we're we're, we're actually going to find that that's kind of an asymptote that pushing it further than that's really really hard, and I think there's going to be some frustration that okay well we can add you know oh good that person made it to 124, and then you know the inevitable happened. So I, I suspect that that's where things are going to go. But again, I mean that's a prediction. Who who knows? Who knows for sure? Yeah, that that would be my guess. Okay. The next one, a lot of talk in this book about organisms being algorithms. Are they? Are organisms algorithms? Oh, see that. See, so the the problem here, and this opens up to a larger, a larger discussion throughout the book. Um, He he brings this up in, in several different places where he basically says, "Listen, the current scientific consensus is that." Say there is, for example, there is no soul. There's no human soul. There's no mind beyond the brain. There's nothing, you know, basically, and nothing material, uh, nothing immaterial exists, scientifically speaking. But at the same time, he then calls that into question and says, "Yeah, but we actually, scientifically speaking, really can't explain consciousness. We can't explain like why we are self-aware. We can't explain." where life came from. We can explain how life evolves into different forms, you know, different organisms evolve into different forms of, of uh, organisms, different types of organisms. We can't really figure out how you get, you know, something alive from rocks, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and saying that slightly differently than he does. Um, So he does bring that up and says that this is a problem. Like we don't actually have a whole lot of scientific knowledge of how any of this works at a deep level. Uh, and then he turns around and says, but you know, the, the scientific consensus is basically that human beings are organisms or are, are human organisms. Human beings are algorithms that, you know, various animals are algorithms that organisms are just algorithms like anything else. Uh, and you know, that that's that. All um, right. And, and just to take a step back, the way he defines algorithm is a methodical set of steps that can be used to make calculations, resolve problems and reach decisions. So we would basically be saying that anything that a person does coded can be reduced to a code of instructions. Okay. Yeah. Now there are a couple things that are, are worth bringing in here because he, he spends so much time emphasizing this organisms or algorithms point that it's easy to, again, it's easy to kind of lose his, where his voice comes in and his questions come in a little bit too. And the point in this book that there are two quotes I want to bring in here that, that help explain a little bit of what, what he's trying to do here, because what he does by the end of the book is he takes you to this concept of called dataism, where he says, this is a basically a modern where, whereas uh, he says the, the, the de facto religion, meaning the unifying, uh, a set of assumptions that even people from different quote unquote religions like Christianity and Islam and so on, the basically modernity has operated according to a set of uh, agreed rules that even people from differing sects and all that agree on in general. Uh, again, Lane, uh, another, another scholar calls this meta religion. It's the thing that, that, that it, it's kind of the religion above all religions uh, that, that people at a given time share 
uh, he says, well, that, that thing ever since the end of the Middle Ages, at least, has been humanism. And particularly uh, in, in more recent times, uh, liberal humanism has been, or humanistic liberalism has been the, the shared assumption, the shared religion of most of the, of the modern world. He says, that's, that's the way it is. But he says, there are modern techno religions, as he calls them, that are vying to take the place of this liberalism that is fraying under the basically the onslaught of the developments of technology and all of this, all the while we don't realize that these things are changing and they're changing the way that we think. And we're giving ourselves over to a situation in which we're going to have a crisis of identity and of what kind of world we want to live in, given the things that we're able to do. And so he presents dataism as one of those two uh, techno religions. And particularly uh, he thinks dataism is the direction that everything is ultimately going right now because it's the shared perspective of science and, you know, Silicon Valley and basically technological uh, development. And he says, listen, dataism uh, he says says the universe consists of data flows and the value of any phenomenon or entity is determined by its contribution to data processing and he says this may strike you as some eccentric fringe notion but in fact it has already conquered most of the scientific establishment so then he says in the 150 years since charles darwin published on the origin of species the life, life sciences have, have come to see organisms as bio, biochemical algorithms and then, you know, same thing in terms of uh, of computer science and all of these other things. And he says dataism basically points out that the same mathematical laws apply to both biochemical and electronic algorithms. So the barrier between animals and machines collapses and it, you get to that. And he says, listen, you may not agree with the idea that organisms are algorithms, and that giraffes, tomatoes, and human beings are just different methods for processing data. But you should know that this is current scientific dogma and that it is changing our world beyond recognition. Now, what that tells me is that Harari himself is skeptical of the assumption of the idea that organisms are algorithms. And that mm -hmm. you can basically equate organisms with algorithms. He, I think he's skeptical of that idea. That You see that in that quote. And there's one other mm -hmm. one I'm going to go to in a moment. But he's right that even those who don't agree with that idea are generally operating by that idea, according to that idea, in the way that, we, in the way that, uh, that we're doing society at this point, the way that we do our scientific research, the way that we're doing our, uh, the way that we're setting up our technological platforms, the way that we're establishing a lot of our values. He says the way that we're living all this stuff out, he says, th this is taking over and we need to be aware of that. I think he's right about that. So I, I, I actually don't think that you, that you can, uh, that you can equate organisms and algorithms. I think that organisms operate, that there are algorithms encoded in organisms and to some, to some degree, I think you can look at say DNA mm -hmm. as algorithmic. Sure. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a set of instructions. Yes. But what we're finding is that DNA is not 
uh, is not determinative. Two people with exactly the same DNA can wind up very, very different, even in terms of phenotype. We don't understand why. And, you know, two people with exactly the same DNA presented with the same choices and the same basic upbringing and all that turn out very different in terms of the choices that they make. So it's not determinative in that in that regard. So even though there may be algorithms in play, I'm not I'm not so sure that we can that we can uh, that we can identify them. And elsewhere, uh, later on, toward the end of the book, he says, uh, you know, it's equally doubtful. So that again, he's he, as he's getting back to his own voice here. He says, at pre- at pres- in particular, at present, we have no idea how or why data flows could produce consciousness and subjective experiences. Maybe we'll have a good ex- explanation in 20 years, but maybe we'll discover that organisms aren't algorithms after all. Again, you see him kind of emerging there with this idea that, you know, we're, we've jumped really hard into this conclusion that, you know, well, we can just define everything as algorithms. Mm-hmm. Maybe it doesn't, maybe that's not right. Now, my answer to that, by the way, is that science, and he, he actually alludes to this elsewhere in the book and directly addresses it a couple places, science can't discover or prove the answer to that question one way or another. Mm-hmm. There's no way of, of actually doing that in, a, uh, in, a, in an empirical sense. Now, science is the only way forward. Uh, I'll say this. Uh, uh, assuming that organisms are not algorithms, that assumption, that conviction is the only way forward that doesn't lead to really bad results to what I would say is destruction. Mm-hmm. The only way that doesn't lead to destruction in terms of society and in terms of humanity is to, is to embrace the conclusion that organisms are something beyond algorithms, that there's something else to them. So is, is part of his, do you think part of his writing in this book is to show the absurdities of, of some of these assumptions? Um, I don't know that he would call them absurdities because an absurdity is something that doesn't make sense. What he wants to do is he wants to show the end results of the trajectory. He wants to show that yeah. It's not necessarily absurd, and actually it would be better if it were absurd. That he, What he wants to show is that if you take these things to their logical conclusion, they're horrifying. And is that, is that like in your teaching of the, of the old prophets, is that what the prophets did? Generally speaking, yes. Okay. It's saying, look, if you continue to do this, this is what's going to happen, and nobody's going to like it. Okay. So stop doing what you're doing. Figure out, you know, do, do things the right way. And maybe, just maybe, this bad stuff isn't going to come down the pike. You see yeah. a lot of that from the, say, ninth century Hebrew prophets. Okay. But he, he's doing a lot of the same stuff here. And again, he's working very much in line with Nietzsche, first of all. And again, there's an early quote where he says, not only do we possess far more power than ever before, but against all expectations, God's death did not lead to social collapse. And yet, he's saying the social collapse that Nietzsche was worried about when Nietzsche said, God is dead, now what? And Nietzsche mm-hmm. then breaks down how, you know, ultimately we, that could lead to social collapse and then eventually the rise of Ubermenschen who emerged from the ashes uh, as 
the result of of um, uh, natural selection taking it, you know, be, basically being let loose among humanity. Now that uh, God is dead and humanity has, you know, taken to eating itself and competing in more of the laws of nature once again, you're going to get the result of you know, the result is going to be evolution and, and supermen because what Nietzsche is dealing with is he says look we're in a position where we've stopped evolving and the reason we've stopped evolving is because we do all this stuff that Judaism basically foisted on humanity through Christianity if you read that this is all in uh, a lot of this is in Nietzsche's uh, uh, the um, uh, what is it the genealogy of morality which we can link um, but in Nietzsche's genealogy of morality he talks about look the, the Judaism the, the Jews used Christianity as a Trojan horse to get everybody to um, to take care of the poor and to look after the sick and to basically, uh, you know, ba- basically take all of this, uh, what he regards as the Teutonic desire for power, the Teutonic nobility, where, you know, the, the, the poor and the, and the feeble and so on would be cast out and basically the society stays strong. Instead, because we take care of the sick, because we, uh, you know, do all these things that that benefit the weak, we've stopped evolution. Human beings aren't evolving anymore. In fact, if anything, we're going backwards because the weak and the feeble are procreating and they're having lots of kids, and so the powerful are actually, in some cases, having fewer kids, and as a result, it's you know idiocracy, which we also can link in the show notes. You know, you get a few generations of the of the of the dumb people having more kids than the smart people, and humanity gets dumber. You know, uh, basically, uh, it's natural selection is working the opposite way because of the social structures that we have in place to keep it from working the way that it that it would, and you know, culling the herd. And Nietzsche basically so that's where we says, get the uh, that's where we get the Darwin Awards, right? And so basically, <laughs> Nietzsche says, well. Now we're starting to figure out that God is dead, that there is that, that God doesn't exist. Now, now God is dead, so now in light of that, what's going to happen? Well, you get the collapse of these various you know societal things that keep the weak from being taken advantage of and all that. For Nietzsche, that may be a good thing because it leads to Superman. Well, Harari is looking at this and saying, it didn't happen then, the way that Nietzsche was, was imagining. Now, the Nazis tried, tried to actually give it a kickstart, but... Uh, and actually, that's part of why Hitler was so willing to just throw more and more people in, in, into the war when it was obvious that they were going to lose. Because as far as he was concerned, it was a Nietzschean pro- project. If they weren't strong enough, they deserved to die. Hmm. Right? And that would apply to himself as well. I mean, Hitler, in that sense, Hitler was not a madman. He was, he was worse. He was thoroughly logical and evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Harari here is taking the same basic idea and saying, look, we actually are now in a position where in terms of technology and in terms of the direction of a lot of things, we actually might be able to do some of the stuff that Nietzsche was, ta- Nietzsche was talking about. And you could have the elites basically leaving behind everybody else and everybody else is a subclass like, like basically an- lower animals compared to us now. And if you look at how we treat lower animals, and he's got that whole section on that, you know, locking them in cages and doing stuff like that with our current agriculture. And he says, look at how we've treat, we treat our animals. That might be how the elite who become supermen in the future through augmentation and gen- genetic uh, 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 engineering and all that, 
how they treat the rest of us who don't make the leap. Yeah. And how could we know how that's going to work? And because we can't think like a, a Superman, they're going to be so yeah. different. If they get there, they're going to be so different from us that their ethics are going to be different. The way that they think are going to be different. Their morale, their notion of morality is going to be completely different. And is this the world we want to build? That's what, that's what Harari is doing here. And it's, it's a yeah. really provocative thing. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great answer. Um, next question. Does the old Testament God never promise any rewards or punishment after death? And here's why I'm asking this, this is page 48. He says in ancient agricultural societies, many religions displayed surprisingly little interest in metaphysical questions in the afterlife. Instead, they focused on the very mundane issue of increasing agricultural output. Thus the old Testament God never promises any rewards or punish punishments after death. He's not wrong. Okay. Um, now the, the, here, here's the trick. So when you're, when you're talking about the Torah and this, by the way, is why the Sadducees in the new Testament don't believe in the resurrection because there's no notion of an afterlife in the Torah, uh, in the first five books of the, uh, of, of, of the uh, Hebrew Bible. Um, you know, at that layer, you, you're seeing the covenant and the promises in the covenant are basically that the people will be survive, will survive that your that your children will have. Uh, will have God's favor and that they'll have plenty and so on. So he's generally right about that. Now it's later in the tradition that you start to see some indication of a belief in the afterlife. And there, there's some potential hints of it in the, in the, uh, in the Torah itself as well, even though it's never explicit. So it's only once we get to the book of Daniel, which is most scholars think probably the last book of the new Testament to have been written most likely from the second century, the um, old Testament, yeah, uh, the last book of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, um, to have been written uh, likely from the from the sort of mid second century, one uh, sixties is when most scholars think that Daniel was written. Daniel twelve is the first place in the Bible where there's any mention of a personal resurrection, and it's the only place in the in the Hebrew Bible where you have a notion of individual resurrection like that that's specifically promised, uh, and it's. There's some discussion in Ecclesiastes or in Hebrew Kohelet, uh, which it, it calls into question whether or not there is an afterlife uh, and whether or not there's you know justice in the afterlife to compensate for all the injustice in this world. But, uh, but it kind of leaves that question open to some degree. But that's as much as you get in the Hebrew Bible. Huh. So yeah, he's right. Cool. Interesting. Uh, next one. Is the lesson from the Garden of Eden that we shouldn't talk to snakes? <laughs> so here, here's uh, here's the in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived as foragers. The expulsion from Eden bears a striking resemblance to the agricultural revolution. Instead of allowing Adam to keep gathering wild fruits, an angry God condemns him to eat the bread by the sweat of your brow. It might be no coincidence then that the biblical animals spoke with humans only in the pre-agricultural area era of Eden. What lessons does the Bible draw from the episode that you shouldn't listen to snakes and it is generally best to avoid talking with animals and plants? It leads to nothing but disaster. Is that the lesson from the Garden of Eden that we shouldn't talk to snakes? <laughs> well, you know, that's not the lesson that 
I generally uh, have my students uh, emerge from that story with. Um, I suppose if Eve and Adam had not, and by the way, it's worth noting that uh, in the story, the, the, the Bible is actually very clear about where Adam is when Eve is talking with the snake. He's with her, it says, mm-hmm. uh, and she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. So it's not like, you know, she's talking to him solo. So, you know, I guess if they hadn't talked to the snake, maybe they wouldn't have done it. But that doesn't actually seem to be the the, the operating problem. Um, you know, there, there, there might be the whole like, don't try to uh, to divinize yourself uh, aspect of things, which connects actually more to Harari's fears in this book than the snake talking part. Um, you know, don't don't seek to become Homo Deus uh, by uh, via via knowledge. Um, so maybe maybe that one would be a better conclusion, but I'm not not quite so willing to to go with the snakes thing. Now that in fairness, he's making a, a larger point about the progression, and you can make an argument as to whether or not. I mean, there's there's questions as to whether or not he's actually right about this being the progression, but basically making he make he's making the case that uh, that monotheism developed out of animism. Uh, this idea that there are spirits and so on local spirits and all of this in um pre-agricultural societies and all that 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 pre-agricultural societies had this idea of uh you know animals and plants having their own life force and all of this that you could communicate with and did communicate with and honored and all of this uh and that ultimately monotheistic traditions shut all that down and certainly you do see monotheistic traditions uh like like Judaism and Christianity that do discourage uh, what you would see as you know divination of certain types where you would potentially you know try to speak with the dead or whatever. But in terms of talking to snakes specifically or talking to animals, that's not exactly prohibited. Uh, and there is the notion in Judaism and Christianity at least uh, that that God, even though there's, there's only one God that you worship and either one, you have multiple spirits and so on that are potentially untrustworthy. Uh, so it's not like you eliminate the animistic kind of overtones necessarily. Uh, you just don't worship them. And secondly, God is actually, uh, it's almost, there's a kind of a quasi panentheism. So God is in all of these things, the God of Israel, the God of Christianity is in all of these things and gives his life, you know, he's the animating principle in all of these things uh, such that, you know, if you do encounter the divine through these things, you're really encountering that God through them as well. So you, you can make a case against several things there, but I I don't, I don't have a a huge objection to it. Okay. I'll just do uh, two more here. Uh, Page 98 in the garden of Eden myth, humans are punished for their curiosity and for their wish to gain knowledge. Yeah, that's just flat wrong. <laughs> so I thought they were punished for their disobedience and wanting to be gods. Yeah, it's it, it's not so much for their wanting to be gods, but their disobedience. Uh, and actually, I think C.S. Lewis is is uh, is is right in arguing that actually they're reaching out to uh, to to seize the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Actually, is what costs them knowledge. 
that when you actually experience evil, you don't get to know, you don't, you don't gain knowledge by doing evil is Lewis's argument. And I think he's right uh, that you gain knowledge by resisting evil, at which point you actually get to see evil even more for what it is. That the person doing evil is actually blinded by it. And what we find in the the story of Eden is that humanity actually not only does not become wise as gods, but is actually blinded and becomes more and more foolish over the course of uh, of, of the narrative as a result of the, the, the deed that Adam and Eve do. So it's not that they actually, uh, that their wish to gain knowledge is the problem. What they do is they seek the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and, and Yada, the Hebrew here, which Harari certainly knows. I mean, he's, he's in his, uh, he, this book was, I believe actually originally written in Hebrew. Yeah. Um, but Yada in Hebrew actually has more of an experiential sense to it. Uh, sort of like in, in Spanish, you might have, you have two words for, for knowledge. You can have uh, saber, which is like to know in a kind of scientific fashion, you know, you have knowledge and then you have conosco, which is like an experiential knowledge. And generally speaking, Yada can kind of do double duty in, in, in Hebrew for that, but it is an experiential knowledge. They're experiencing good and evil. So instead of just knowing good and thereby being able to discern both good and evil, they experience both good and evil and actually lose their capacity to discern. That's what happens in the story. It's, it's, it's not that they're forbidden from knowledge. It's that they're, 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 the way that they, they try to seize that experiential knowledge of both good and evil, they get both good and evil. And the evil begins, begins the blindness and, and takes away the, the, the knowledge, takes away, it uh, takes away the um, ability to discern. So that's a place where I, I think he's actually mistaken in the way that he, that he reads that. All right. One, one last question. I thought this was just an excellent question that he asks on page 277. He says, ask yourself, what is the most influential discovery, invention, or creation of the 20th century? And then he says, now ask yourself, what was the most influential discovery, invention, or creation of traditional religions, such as Islam and Christianity in the 20th century? What a, the most important technological innovation in the 20th or 21st century. 20th. 20th century. That's, that's a really hard one in terms of technological innovation. I would probably say the microchip. Yeah. In, in the 20th century, but you can make a case for several other things. Um, you know, uh, you you can make a case for just electricity, basically, um, uh, the uh, for electrical generators, uh, and and electricity as a as a as as a large scale innovation there. So you, you could go for that, but that started a little bit earlier than that. So you might push that into the nineteenth. But I would say probably probably that. Um, and then as far as Religious innovation. 
and I think you know I think this makes his point is that you don't think about that's not a space for innovation per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, religions tend to be conservative in that regard, so in, it's not a space for innovation. I would say um, uh, I'll take a hard pass on that one. Now you had a couple yeah. other questions. Go go for them. Um, all right. So Old Testament views on homosexuality. I'm going to read what he says on that. Hence, according to the best scientific knowledge, the Leviticus injunctions against homosexuality reflect nothing grander than the biases of a few priests and scholars in ancient Jerusalem. The uh, through science, sorry, though science cannot decide whether people ought to obey God's commands, it has many relevant things to say about the provenance of the Bible. If Ugandan politicians think that the power that created the cosmos, the galaxies, and the black holes becomes terribly upset whenever two homo sapien males have a bit of fun together, then science can help disabuse them of this rather bizarre notion. Um, I just wrote in the in the column there would love Jason's thoughts on this. <laughs> what he's alluding to is he's saying that Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, rather than being handed down to Moses and you know written by the, the hand of God or something like that, was composed most likely by a priestly class, perhaps in Jerusalem, perhaps not, uh, in you know, and finalized somewhere, uh, somewhere probably in the exilic period, uh, or maybe just you get some variation, but just pre-exilic or just post-exilic, but you know, say let's say in the exilic period, so in the five hundreds. BCE. And so what he said what he's saying there is that since we are pretty pretty certain that the that Leviticus comes from that time period and not from Mount Sinai written by the hand of God, then it basically follows that it reflects the biases of a few priests who basically stuck in some stuff that was anti uh anti homosexual behavior. Uh and so uh so we can, you know, basically conclude that God didn't hand that down. Now as for where, you know, when the book of Leviticus was probably finalized, he's, he's operating on pretty good footing. Now, whether that whether that means that this uh, that God didn't reveal uh, that as you know his explicit expressed will to those priests, that's another question, and I think that's a harder question to uh, to answer in that in a scientific way. So, and and he would acknowledge that. So that that I would I would just say that the um, that the one does not actually involve coming to a conclusion on the other. Okay. Um, the last one involves a rather large paragraph, uh, but my question is summarize it. Yeah. Uh, it, he he makes reference that the sci- scientific revolution was blocked because of holy scriptures. I, I always was on the, under the assumption that the scientific re- revolution arose within a Christian culture. He actually says that later in the book. So yeah, yeah. He, 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 he actually go, goes sort of both sides on that, and he's not wrong entirely on either side. Uh, yeah. It did develop out of Christian organizations, and he actually says, listen, if you don't have monasteries and all of that that are, wor- that are developing various bureaucratic and scientific innovations, you don't get the scientific revolution, and he's right. But you know, he also is right that uh, many scientific innovations were uh, fought hard by various religious establishments. So he's he's not wrong yeah. on on either of those. Cool. 
All right, next, thus, let's thus, move into, let's move past. Thus ends the questions for Jason section. Yeah, let's move past that section and get to a little bit more discussion. And this is going to, this is turning into a pretty long episode. Hopefully uh, I don't lose power again, uh, which <laughs> happened uh, just a few minutes ago and uh, forced us to uh, edit this just a little bit. Uh, this is being recorded uh, as uh, Hurricane Florence bears down on my location. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish, if we're going to be able to even finish this episode before we're cut off again, but uh, it's turning into a long episode. So it's getting less and less likely we'll be able to finish before I lose power. All right. So um, I, w- I want to hit on the thing that I thought was one of the most important topics in the book. And that was, that in the age of artificial intelligence and algorithms and technology, that focusing on a niche will backfire. And the reason that stuck out to me the most is we, we've talked about this a lot in, in other episodes. And in some of the books that we've read, uh, some of, when I'm listening to podcasts, I, I hear a lot, there's riches in the niches, focus really deep into one area, you know, get become really good at one thing and you'll, you'll always have, have a job. And he's saying, if, if your job can be turned into an algorithm, if, if, uh, if a machine can do your job you, by you focusing on that one thing that will backfire in this coming age. And I, I thought it was just a really important thing to, to keep in mind, uh, I, I just read the book about Leonardo da Vinci, and I mean, he was all over the place and had had interests all over, and, and those interests worked with each other, and he learned from one and applied that into others. And so there, there's kind of that question of should I should I really dig down in, into one topic area, into one uh, type of job, or should I should I go a little broader uh, so that um, focusing on that niche does not backfire in in the age of AI? Yeah, I I, I think I, I don't have a whole lot to say there, but I think he's he's basically right uh, about that. Though in the short term, the riches are in the niches. In, in the long yeah. term, you'd better be able to hit more than one niche. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one one other thing here the, that stuck out to me was when he was presenting the beliefs of humanism, they're, they're things that I believe, but I, I connect them to Christianity. Uh, so I, I, that was interesting to me as I was reading these, because I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I buy that. Um, but that seemed to me to be more coming from Christianity in, instead of humanism. But uh, just uh, something that I... I thought about as I was reading this book. Yeah. And actually, you know, I think you're not entirely wrong that modern humanism is actually the outgrowth of Christianity. And this connects to something we've talked about before. We, if you remember, we, uh, we talked about this, uh, in the natural born heroes episode of where a lot of, uh, a lot of modern ethics come from, even if people aren't aware of it, uh, basically that the assumptions of humanism are outgrowths more or less of Christianity. Uh, and we can post something in the show notes uh, that, that uh, connects to that. We can repost it from what we, what we had in that episode, but uh, you're not wrong to connect many, much of that with Christianity, but what's happened is many of those assumptions, particularly things like uh, notions of human rights, 
not necessarily human rights in terms of bestowed by God. What's happened is the fundamental underpinnings, the foundation for many of the of the humanistic assumptions that people hold to today, the theolog- the Christian theological underpinnings of those have largely been dropped. And so now you have the, and this is something that I think he's aware of, uh, but you have the effort to sustain a particular morality or a particular way of thinking about the world without its foundation. And that's, again, that gets back to Nietzsche. Nietzsche is, is dealing with this already saying, okay, so if God is dead and people aren't going to be operating much longer, as more and more people realize that God is dead and that we actually you know, are operating in a God-free world, what's going to happen as people start to, you know, enjoy their freedom without the, you know, cop in the sky that might stop them for speeding or for murder or whatever else they can get away with, you know? And what Harari is aware of is that, yeah, you know, he says, listen, God is dead. It's just taken a long time to deal with the corpse, with the body. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, once you, once you have that, now again we're dealing with humanism humanism has been the dominant paradigm for a long long time but the foundations on which we've built humanism one of which it it grew out of christianity well if god is if if increasingly even more you know people are are moving away from from uh that that underpinning theology and then many of the other assumptions are being challenged in other respects how long can this sustain without a clear foundation? So he's, he's definitely, definitely going there. And again, it's a really, really interesting argument. It's why I've said in the past that, you know, Nietzsche was the last interesting atheist, really, because he understood the, uh, <laughs> the implications very well of what, what he was saying and understood a lot hmm. of the theological underpinnings of, of other stuff. So, hmm. All right. What about you? Some nitty gritty. Okay, so one thing I, I definitely I've actually assigned some of this book for some of my classes, uh, which is you know it's worth bringing in a couple of the things that I find most worth worthwhile for my classes to to address. One of which is his focus on uh, narratives and the intersubjective as 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 one of the things that, one of the domains that makes uh, humanity so distinct and humanity so powerful, and that's that. Human beings he, uh, operate on the basis of what he calls shared fictions. Uh, I, I actually don't really like the use of fictions there. It, again, it's it's overly provocative. Uh, I, I like the idea of myth or story or narrative. We've talked about that on this podcast before. Uh, but basically, he he makes the case that that or makes the point that generally speaking people think about the world as either objective as in like if i if i jump off of that building i'm going to hit the ground no matter what i believe about it right i might i might actually believe that i won't but gravity still exists even if i don't think it does that's not a subjective thing it's objective and everybody has to deal with it mm-hmm. matter ex- matter is something we have to interact with. We there, there are other people out there that we have to interact with. Those are objective facts. And no amount of believing them away is going to change that, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have subjective, the subjective domain. 
And that's a domain of my internal feelings and my internal perceptions and all of that. And actually, I can only access the objective through my subjective perceptions, right? I actually can't access the uh, the stone on the ground as it is. I can only access it in as much as my senses allow me to perceive it, right? So in, even in that, I'm only accessing the, the image of it in some sense. Mm-hmm. So, and the thing is, none of us can actually access other people's or other organisms' subjective state. I can't, I can't feel what you feel. And this, you know, this is one of the interesting questions in terms of like modern trans politics, for example. Uh, Rebecca Riley Cooper has pointed this out. Uh, she's a philosopher in, uh, in the UK. She's pointed out that, you know, you have people say, well, I feel like a woman or I feel like a man. Well, I can't actually make that statement coherently. I can't say I feel like a man because I don't know how other men feel. I can't access that. I have no access to that. All I have access to is how I feel. So I can say I feel like me. And the only thing I can do is extrapolate based on communication with other people who have bodies more similar to mine that this is, you know, that feeling like this is how it seems that other people who fit in the category of man say, or I can kind of assume or extrapolate that they feel this way, but I can't, mm-hmm. I can't be sure, right? Not a hundred percent because I can't feel how, uh, how other people feel. Or if you really want to get, you know, make your mind explode, you know, is, is what I perceive as the color blue, what, other people call blue. Is that what they see or do they see it differently? Yeah. Right. We can't know because our perception is subjective and that's independent. You can't, it's not shared. And so those two don't, don't meet. And he says, you know, other animals, they have, they, they operate in that binary world. What makes humans different is humans also have this third level, the intersubjective And this is the world in which humans communicate in ways that allows us to share and extrapolate our subjective, that allows us to influence the objective. And he says, this is the realm that really makes humanity humanity. And it's where you have shared stories and and myths and all of these things that allow us to, to cooperate in ways that other animals just simply can't do. You know, whereas, you know, bonobos can get together and, you know, operate based on orgiastic behavior, human beings can have much larger cooperative groups, you know, the size of nation states and even larger on the basis of a different kind of communication based on the principle of the intersubjective. And out of that, he says, look, this helps us understand what's going on in ancient religion. We look at these people and we go, oh, what savages they were. But how is... Pharaoh or ancient Sumerian religion, you know, the ancient Sumerian religious uh, 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 organization, any different from, say, Elvis or Google. He's like, does Google exist? It's not objective. There's no objective Google. And it's also not in the realm of the subjective. What it is, is it's a bunch of people that gather together and decided to agree upon 
the existence of an organization that we're going to we're going to agree to cooperate in such a way that Google as an entity exists and it's something that now has a, as a label represents all these other people and we can talk about how Google or Alphabet the, the parent company of Google Alphabet or Apple Incorporated does something but Apple doesn't do anything and you know as Many people have pointed out after the Citizens United ruling, corporations aren't people. Corporations don't objectively exist. And yet they do exist. And yet they are actually persons in a intersubjective sense. It's a gathering of people who've agreed to do something. That principle is really important. And he does a great job of explaining how that works, how people cooperate and all of that. And he says, listen, Fictions, or what I prefer to call myths, enable us to cooperate better. Now, the price we pay is that the same fictions also determine the goals of our, of our cooperation. So the myths and stories that we agree upon, that we share, that govern our behavior, also sets the, the terms of what that cooperation is going to be, is going to involve. But we all operate according to the shared intersubjective stories that we tell one another. The clothing that we wear, the hairstyles that we have, all of that stuff is dependent on these shared stories. And you We're just shared. read the Con- Conrad book. Is that go deeper into this area? Not that much. Okay. No, not that much. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a really important piece. Uh, one, other, uh, one other piece uh, that I thought was uh, really important was his, uh, his discussion, and it dovetails right on the heels of this, of science and religion. And very often you see a lot of people that will talk about science and religion as though they're opposites, as though they're opposing forces. And he says, no, 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 no. no. This, this misunderstands how this works. First of all, if we're defining religion as just like, religions as in you know christianity judaism islam hinduism or whatever first of all we're kind of missing the point functionally of how religion works because again ancient temples functioned more like modern corporations than they did anything else so if that's how that works then we need to kind of revise how we're evaluating religion first of all secondly He says, in practice, science and religion are like a husband and wife who, after 500 years of marriage counseling, still don't know each other. He still dreams about Cinderella and she keeps pining for Prince Charming while they argue about whose turn it is to take out the rubbish. Right. And then really, really nicely puts it together on a couple other things. More importantly, science always needs religious assistance in order to create viable human institutions. Scientists study how the world functions, but there is no scientific method for determining how humans ought to behave. Science tells us that humans cannot survive without oxygen. However, is it okay to to execute criminals by asphyxiation? Science doesn't know how to answer such a question. Only religions provide us with the necessary guidance. And then further, in theory... Both science and religion are interested above all in the truth, and because each upholds a different truth, they are doomed to clash. In fact, neither science nor religion cares that much about the truth. Hence, they can easily uh, compromise, coexist, and even cooperate. Religion is interested above all in order. It aims to create and maintain the social structure. 
Science is interested above all in power. It aims to acquire the power to cure diseases, fight wars, and produce food. As, in, as individuals, scientists and priests may give Im- immense importance to the truth. As collective institutions, science and religion prefer order and power over truth. They can therefore make good bedfellows. The uncompromising quest for truth is a spiritual journey, which can seldom remain within the confines of either religious or scientific establishments. And there's a lot there. And again, he, he talks about humanism, sec- secular or otherwise, humanism and liberalism as religious concepts, as these are relig- modern religions and they are governing science. Science serves them and they serve science. And these are, these are bedfellows. Really, really good chapters worth, worth reading, uh, worth reading there. Uh, and and along with that, and I'll wrap uh, the nitty gritty section that I I have here uh, with two things. One is he's also in addition to to developing a lot of Nietzsche here. There's also a lot of places where uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, which also itself was interacting with a lot of Nietzsche's Nietzsche's kind of concepts, is really relevant to what happens here. So that's another book to read in tandem with this one, uh, because what what. Harari is doing here is he says, look, every day, millions of people decide to grant their smartphone a bit more control over their lives or try a new and more effective antidepressant drug in pursuit of health, happiness and power. Humans will gradually change first one of their features and then another and then another until they will no longer be human. And that's Harari's concern here. And Lewis's abolition of man is exactly about that sort of thing. He's not talking about technology, but he's talking about the philosophical underpinnings of where he, where Lewis in the, in the 1940s and 50s sees culture going. And he says, we're going to the place where actually humanity is going to be, our humanity is going to be lost in the process of this if we don't, if we don't get this right. And that's the same basic warning that that Harari's going towards in this in this book, Lewis from a, a pretty different perspective, but both kind of in the same trajectory here. Worth reading both of them. Finally, some scary thoughts about the present circumstances politically, uh, not just in the United States, but in in across the uh, across Europe and, and and other places right now. He notes. People feel bound by democratic elections only when they share a ba- only. So people feel bound by democratic elections only when they share a basic bond with most other voters. If the experience of other voters is alien to me, and if I believe they don't understand my feelings and don't care about my vital interests, then even if I am outvoted by a hundred to one, I have absolutely no reason to accept the verdict. Democratic elections usually only work within populations that have some prior common bond, such as shared religious beliefs and national myths. They are a method to settle disagreements between people who already agree on the basics. But you can't do democratic elections on the basics. And then he further, you know, has this, you know, very pithy example of that where he says you cannot resolve the arab israeli conflict by making 8 million israeli citizens and 350 sit ci- and the 350 million citizens of the arab league nations vote on it for obvious reasons israelis won't feel committed to the outcome of such of such a, a plebiscite you know he he's right about this and as various nation states have kind of lost their nation their trust in national narratives 
And as common religiosity has been dropped in many cases, or there's been, you know, increased diversity, diversity can be a very good thing. But as you get major differences among groups that don't share a lot of common assumptions, and you get elections that have results that people don't like, eventually people stop actually regarding those elections as valid and you get in and start to try to settle those disputes in other ways than, than democratic elections. And that's really dangerous. And I think we're, Mm -hmm. we're, we're pretty close to that tipping point in the U S potentially in the UK and lots of other places right now where, you know, this is, it's dangerous. And, and I think he hits that, hits that well as well. So that's yeah. all I got in terms of uh, the the nitty gritty, some of the details that I, I think are really worth it. I mean, there's so much fun stuff in this book. I mean, why why modern modern people are are stuck maintaining their their lawns and you know all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Great stuff in here, well yeah. worth it. Uh, but uh, I think you uh, wanted to do one last section, and that had to do with some criticism. Yeah, uh, and then and then we'll hit into the, to our uh, final conclusions. Um, my criticisms were, were largely on a lot of the, the ideas that we, we've talked about. And I guess when I first read through the book, I just didn't know if, if these were claims he was making to get to his point or if these were the things that uh, he was saying, this is what science has agreed upon and we're just taking it at face value and going from there. So the, the, the things I had trouble with were, were where the soul is, is dismissed in less than two pages and, and we just move <laughs> forward from there. And maybe other people have read a lot of other stuff where, where that's just a given. And, and, and so that, that wouldn't stick out, but I, it, it, it that was shocking. I, one quote I came across uh, outside of this book is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And to me, that's an extraordinary claim. Uh, and to deal with it in two pages. And then he would deal with some of these things. And, and then uh, one of my favorites was on page 188. He says, now that we have a better view of religion, and this was after talking about uh, uh, this particular religion thing <laughs> for two pages. And it's like, okay, we have a better idea of religion after two pages. But I think that was, af- after discussing this with you, I, I think that was part of his point is, is these are these are the assumptions that were going on. These are how how society is thinking right now. This is, this is, uh, and, and this is where we're moving. This is where we're going. If, if, if that's true. So maybe, uh, a part of that, uh, criticism is, is, uh, purposeful on his part. Um, he, he, he also made a comment like divine inspiration is out of vogue. And that was on page 231. He was talking about music and I, I, I don't see that in anything I, I read and any musician I speak to, uh, there, most people I come across there, there, there's, uh, something if, if they're getting a song or if they're writing a song or playing it, they, they realize that it's not coming from them. It's, there's some sort of mystical quality to it. And we've talked about that, like with Anne Lamott's, uh, bird by bird or, uh, uh, Julia Cameron in particular. Um, yeah. The episode on that uh, that we did before really interacts with that notion of you're you're getting creativity from outside yourself. So I, I agree with you that he's not quite right, especially if you talk to creators, uh, to creatives. However, mm-hmm. 
I think he's right in the general population. If, yeah. if, if, if you went and told someone in the general population that God inspired this song and that I got this from God to the they normal person on the street, they might look at you like you're nuts. Yeah. So I think it's a little bit of a both and yeah. there where I think a yeah. lot of times creatives are in a different place than, than a lot of people around them who really do yeah. not operate by the same assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last thing that, that, uh, and this is, this is something I, I, that, that frustrates me and I, I don't ever hear anyone talking about it. So, uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on it too, Jason, but I, I hate when people say, well, we're, we're this way today because of cavemen <laughs> hundreds of thousands of years ago. So we think this way or we act this way because, you know, one time, one, you know, hundred thousand years ago, we lived in caves and, 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 and that's how we did things. But like, I, I look at my life and, and I moved into a, I, this is maybe a dumb, I dumb example, the first cave like you I, lived I moved, in the what? the first cave you lived in. Yeah. The first cave I lived in, uh, the first loft I lived in. What, there was a train, there were six train tracks right right behind it. And my whole life I've slept in total silence. And then all of a sudden I move in a place where there's trains going by the entire night. And <laughs> by the next night, I, I'm sleeping like a baby again. I mean, I, I'm totally fine. So I, I was able to adapt to that in one night. So wh- where's this like, oh, it takes us millions and millions of years to get over these, these instincts. And yeah, I know we see instincts in animals and stuff, but to me, it's just a very lazy way of thinking. And especially after reading guns, germs, and steel, he, they, they, uh, Jared diamond talks about there's different types of societies. There's tribes, there's States, there's farmers, there's hunter gatherers. So some of those societies would look closer to, to ours than, than others. And so I, I just, I, I hate that idea of, <laughs> and you, I hear it everywhere. I hear it on like every podcast. It's like, well, we, we act this way in business because, you know, at one point we were cavemen and we had to kill animals and, and run after them and stuff. And it's like, how do you know? Yeah. At, at, well, in the past, when we were hunter gatherers, this is how this worked. And generally there is that assumption that at some point pre, uh, it's basically in the pre-industrial period, there may have been different types of societies, but before, or not pre-industrial, but pre-agricultural that's a significant difference. But in a pre-agricultural era, you know, before people are settling down in settled civilizations, you have certain things that would be adapted for as advantageous for nomadic hunter-gatherers, which must have been basically the way things were before settled agriculture. And that may or may not be right, but I'm skeptical of it just because it's presented oftentimes this kind of evolutionary biology uh, is speculation presented as science. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's basically thinking backwards from current traits to say, okay, so this is how people tend to work in modern post-industrial society. So why would people have adapted to work this way in a hunter gatherer context? Well, actually, you can think about if you imagine this might have given an, an advantage. So this must be the reason. And I do find that to be oftentimes less than persuasive. But, you know, it the, the, the issue is and, and this is this is the interesting thing is that what this is, is an attempt, as, as far as I can see, it's an attempt of people coming from a 
more or less naturalistic uh, perspective, trying to construct a mythological story huh. to uh, from which you can you can get behavior and ethics and other and explanations of the way that the world is uh, using quasi scientific because it's not really scientific you can't go back and and check that mm-hmm. tools so in the absence of older myths so when you no longer can can take recourse to say the adam and eve myth which does a pretty good job of explaining behavior which is why it was it's been so long lived and powerful for so long it does a good job of explaining how things are not necessarily you know it's irrelevant to some degree of whether that's actually how they were at some time in the past, that whether there was a historical Adam or Eve. The question is, does it do a good job of explaining things now? Right. Mm-hmm. That's really what matters in that kind of story. This is that's, this is actually an attempt to explain, to do, to write a new story piece by piece for the same mm-hmm. purpose. So it's actually, a, it's actually kind of a quasi scientific attempt to do a new religion which is really what's going on yeah that's interesting it's a new religious foundation yeah uh any criticism on your side so as far as his stuff on the soul he's actually depending on a lot of current thought in uh uh, in in and he's very clear about this about sort of scientific consensus uh there there's a lot of i i would say that the that the majority or the at least the most vocal com- contingent of the modern uh philosophers of mind have generally generally argue that say the mind and the brain are are that there's that there's no distinction between the mind and the brain that you can't assess that and you know the neuro- neurologists uh neuroscientists are concluding that you know we can't distinguish between mind and brain therefore and then these philosophers are taking that and saying therefore you know since we can't distinguish between them we shouldn't distinguish between them we should just treat them as the same uh so that he's he's depending on uh, on a lot of prior discussions, Daniel Dennett, among others, uh, leading the way there. Uh, and then in terms of the soul, there's been you know, numerous attempts to uncover some way of establishing whether or not you could define, whether, whether you could find a soul. Mm-hmm. And there hasn't been one found. So by and large, scientific orthodoxy has been, there is no such thing as a soul. You just have a body that is alive. And so that's that. Now he then runs forward with that to in a way that it does sound like he holds to that view himself. I'm not sure whether he does or not. Again, because of some of the way that he 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 writes this. Either way, I'm I actually find it problematic. Uh, I, I've talked about this in, in in the classroom before as well. Um, it depends on what you mean by soul, mm-hmm. right? I mean, here's my thing is there's clearly something that makes that distinguishes between a living body and a dead one. Right? There's there's a pretty big difference between a living body and a corpse. Now, what that difference is is really hard to define. I mean, is there anything biologically different between 
a corpse seconds after a person dies and the living body just a few seconds earlier. Is there anything different in terms of the actual physical stuff? No, there really isn't. It's the same. It's got the same vitamins, same minerals present, the same basic biochemistry, the same, uh, you know, the same blood, the same, everything is the same, the Mm -hmm. same brain, but somehow for some reason, the electrochemical storm that's going on in the mind or in, or in the brain, I should say the electrochemical storm that's going on in the brain, the heart beating, all of that, that stops, just stops. Why? We don't know. And, you know, you can go to, okay, well, what makes a body alive? Well, the heart's beating. Okay, well, what about when the when your brain... Okay, so you've got chemical... You've got electrochemical activity in the brain. Okay, that's fine. But I can actually take a corpse and I can put electrodes there and I can stimulate that brain to have electrochemical responses. And I can actually make the corpse move, potentially, if I stimulate the right neurons. But guess what? Mm-hmm. There's no consciousness and that person, that corpse is still dead. Mm-hmm. The electrical chemical, the electrochemical stuff is not it. H- how, what the connection between the electrochemical stuff and what's going on in the body and, you know, all of that and tie the ties to consciousness, we don't really understand. And I'm not sure we ever will. But that is where I would say it may be immaterial, but you have to explain what's going on there. You have mm-hmm. to have something to to summarize that. And I would say that that thing that difference between the 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 living body and the dead body the life there is the soul and actually uh when you translate uh the word for soul in hebrew as often as not it's best to just gloss it with life because that's the idea of soul in like the hebrew bible um and this is the the basic idea there now whether the soul is eternal as many philosophers have argued or not, that's another question altogether. And that's something that we can't assess. But what we can know is that with organisms, there's a difference between a living body and a dead body. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that it's just easier to talk about, well, there's something called life that, what is it? We, I know it when I see it. And I can say that the, the thing that distinguishes it is, is the soul. It's funny. The the book I just read is the Leonardo da Vinci by by Walter Isaacson, and and he they kept he kept talking about him painting the soul of the person, and so even in a in a immaterial painting, there's this idea of you can tell you can tell if there's something extra there as opposed to just almost like just a, a paint a picture of somebody right there's a, there's like, a capturing of the know, personality personality yeah. of the person of the life of the person yeah 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 that i i think that's that's an important thing now that said he is very he's he's clear about how he understands how much he understands some of this he says to be frank science knows surprisingly little about mind and consciousness Current orthodoxy holds that consciousness is created by electrochemical reactions in the brain and that mental experiences fulfill some essential data processing function. However, nobody has any idea how a conjury of biochemical reactions and electrical currents in the brain creates the subjective experience of pain, anger, or love. So he's right about that. And again, I I don't think we're going to find any scientific answer of that. 
And mm-hmm. in the same way, he, he, he says, well, you know, there's no soul and there's no self, no indivisible self. Now that's a problem. And again, he's, he's dealing with general scientific or- orthodoxy at this point, but I don't, I'm not persuaded by it myself. You know, he says most experiments have indicated that there is no single self making any of these decisions. Rather, they result from a tug of war between different and often conflicting inner entities. And, you know, he talks about Kahneman, for example, with the experiencing and the um, remembering self, for example. Mm -hmm. And you you get, you know, he he gave an example of, you know, you could have a, a gay Mormon who on the one hand wants he's he's attracted to other men and on the other hand he desperately wants to be straight which which one is the actual self and see my thing is this is not a new discovery ancient philosophy is dealing with this problem of the divided self and multiple selves that exist within you and the internal battle that you have i mean you see this in you know philosophy going back to the sixth century in in uh, bce in in uh in greece for example you see this in the bible plenty but they still have this idea of there being a final arbiter. You make the decision, like I make the decision. Mm-hmm. I adjudicate. I eventually, I one 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 of myself wins out, and that ends up being me. So I may be divided in my desires and all that, but it's still me that makes the makes the decision. Uh, so yeah, that. That I, I found unpersuasive. And then similarly, he's, you know, he addresses that there's no such thing as free will. Again, a very common discussion. Whether he actually buys that or not is irrelevant. The book is making the argument here. And you know, he says, you know, he, he ties this into some of the experimental stuff where attaching electrodes to the to the uh, to the uh, to the brain, you and asking someone to flip a switch or whatever with right or left hand you can actually predict whether the person's going to do it before they're actually aware of which decision they're going to make. So does that mean that the person is actually that the decision is made for the person rather than the conscious person actually making the decision with free will? And so free will is a, is an illusion. First of all, those experiments have been called into question. Some of them have not been as replicable as, uh, as you would like. Uh, secondly, that's not exactly a persuasive way of addressing that. And thirdly, he, he addresses, you know, other experiments such as, you know, you can attach electrodes to a, a, a rat's brain and have the, and basically steer a rat through the, through a maze. And the rat presumably thinks that it's actually making the choices, but you're actually steering it. Therefore, you know, people may argue that there, that we actually, that our free will is illusory. But here's the thing, just because you can stimulate the brain and produce certain perceptions or, you can influence uh, decisions. You can even get a person to make specific decisions by that. That doesn't mean that when you're not tinkering with it, that something else like the person is actually making those things happen. Right. I can, I can steer a car with a, you know, uh, or I can, I can turn the throttle of the car up when, when working on the engine by without pressing the accelerator. But that doesn't mean that when I'm not there, that someone else isn't behind the wheel pressing the accelerator when the car's going. There's some of this getting into un, uh, unconscious versus conscious too, where yeah. uh, if something's yeah. unconscious, you're not, you're not willing it to be done, but it, it's, it's still. Right. Right. No, this is somewhere that, in there. No, that's right. That's right. You, you know, you're, 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 I, I'm not actually like consciously making my heartbeat, but my, my body is doing it for me. 
right? Mm. And there is a desire you, you to live, outsource that, right? That's yeah. outsourced you to outsource the unconscious. <laughs> um, now, that said, again, it doesn't really matter whether or not we agree with the conclusions there in terms of what he's with the argument he's making in his book. And it doesn't matter whether he does because mm-hmm. these are scientific orthodoxy. He ad, he accurately represents that. And if these are wrong, or if we have a reaction to say, ah, I, I don't think that's right. Then the conclusions that actually that leads to are potentially not ones that we want to have in our society. So we should be conscious of that. Huh? which is the point, right? Yeah. So two final things, and I know I've monologued plenty on this episode, but you know, this is a book I, I was pretty excited about. Um, two other things. Uh, one is he has, in the 21st century, the third big project of humanity, of humankind will be to, for us to acquire divine powers of creation and destruction and upgrade homo sapiens into homo deus. And he has this... Uh, we may well think of the new human agenda as con- really consisting of only one project with many branches attaining divinity. My rebuttal or my answer to that, by the way, is this isn't a new project. It's the oldest one. That's the Eden myth, <laughs> right? I mean, it's people yeah. trying to become divine. I mean, this is the oldest project we've ever had. It's just continuing the same project humans have been doing for a long, long time. So, so that's this number one with technology. Finally, there is one place where I do think he got something really wrong. And this is where there's something that does actually matter a little bit in terms of him getting it wrong. And I think he does actually think this and, and I think he's mistaken. And this is, he, he doesn't quite understand how ancient sacrifice worked. He says, priests discovered this principle thousands of years ago. It er, it underlies numerous religious ceremonies and commandments. If you want to make people believe in imaginary entities such as gods and nations, you should make them sacrifice something valuable. The more painful the sacrifice, the more convinced people are of the existence of the imaginary recipient. A poor peasant sacrificing a priceless bull to Jupiter will become convinced that Jupiter really exists. Otherwise, how can he excuse his stupidity? The peasant will sacrifice another bull and another and another just so he won't have to admit that all the previous bulls were wasted. That is not how ancient sacrifice worked. It just isn't. First of all, peasants weren't generally the ones that were sacrificing bulls. Usually it was if you were sacrificing a bull, it was it meant that you were an owner of of a, a herd big enough that you had bulls. If you look at like ancient Israelite sacrifice, you would have like a bull would be required of a wealthy person and like maybe a couple turtle doves would be required of, uh, of, of poor people for certain offerings. Secondly, generally speaking, with a few exceptions, ancient sacrifices involved taking that bull down and sacrificing it to Jupiter. And by sacrificing it to Jupiter, I mean that the priests butchered it, drained some of the blood, poured it out before the God, skinned it. And then uh, would basically divide it up, butcher the butcher the animal, and then take the offal and the intestines and you know the 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 parts of the of the animal that people don't eat, and they would burn that to the god on the altar, and that would be the god's portion. And then the people would eat the barbecued portion. It was a big feast. As I tell my classes at the college level, the closest. If you want to understand, if you want to know what ancient sacrifice looked like, more or less, 
think of a modern, a good old fashioned college football tailgate huh. in the United States, American football tailgate, or, you know, I'm sure they do it in Europe as well with, with soccer and so on. Or as then, you know, some people complain that Americans call it soccer. It's a British term, everybody. Um, <laughs> but it's, it was a tailgate. Everybody gets together there's no refrigeration in the ancient world. If you're going to slaughter a bull, you better have a lot of people to share it with. So what you do is you get it together and you offer it in the temple where the priests serve as, as the de facto butchers of the society. You offer it and then you split it up among the various people that have come to party with you. You pour out libations. And the idea is you're eating in the presence of the God. You are spending common time with the God in honor of the God. And you're giving thanks to the God for giving you the opportunity to have this, this nice meat. So imagine basically a tailgate where you actually butcher the animal there too. Or you actually have like one of the team representatives there to butcher it for you. And then you burn it. You burn the part that you don't eat. That's how most sacrifice works. This is not stupidity, and it's not a peasant giving something up to the God. That's a modern notion. What you have is, generally speaking, peasant sacrifices were the one place where peasants got to eat meat. When, so and, that and, quote, and the meat that was not eaten was usually sold on a secondary market. This is why, by the way, in the New Testament, you have this whole issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. You'd have a secondary meat market. Because there'd be all this meat left over after the group that came in to sacrifice the animal had eaten everything they could. They'd eaten themselves silly over a couple days. And then there were the portions that weren't going to be eaten. Well, guess what? That's going to rot. So you know what the temple does? The temple would sell it in the secondary market so that you'd get cheap meat. And so it's the cheaper meat to, to buy because you're not buying it on the hoof. It's going to go bad soon. So you can buy that relatively cheaply in the market. And that would be the way that most people would get their meat. So how did he, in the quote, it's priests discovered this principle. What's the, prin the, principle the principle and what's it relating to in the book? The principle is basically understanding how cognitive dissonance gets it such that if you make people sacrifice really painful stuff, then they will ultimately believe that whatever they sacrificed for was worth it. Yeah. Okay. And he's, he's conflating the notions of ancient sacrifice with that concept. I don't actually dispute that it works that way in terms of like military service for a nation or something like that. But his his uh, parallel of ancient sacrifice, ancient sacrifice in general did not work the way that he thinks it did. Okay. So that's all I got. We can get to conclusions now. All right. I, this book was kind of a, like a combination of guns, germs, and steel and Kevin Kelly's the inevitable. It, it had that future component um, and also a lot like WTF, which we haven't done yet, but we will be doing soon uh, by O'Reilly, which I, I, I would highly recommend reading as well. Good in, good in tandem with this one and Lewis's Abolition of Man and a little Nietzsche. You, you read those and you're, you're going to be prepared for the apocalyptic future. Yeah. Um, so our discussion right now really helped me understand this book a lot more uh, in that the, the predictions of the future, they are very scary and they're seemingly very possible. Uh, and, and I think it's really important to read for that reason and uh, to understand that that he's taking a lot of the the ideas that are commonplace today and, and just showing what those those could lead to uh, when combined with with technology and AI and uh, more more advanced algorithms. 
Uh, it's an important book. It makes me want to read his new one coming out later this year. Or I, I think it just came out. And then uh, also Sapiens. I've, I've heard heard a lot of, of good things about that. So I'd, I'd suggest reading this book. Um, if for nothing else, just for the the predictions of the future, uh, kind of the, the prophecy that, that you were talking about, Jason, it's a lot of ideas worth thinking about in the, in this one. Yeah, I agree with that. I, th- I think it's a uh, well worth the read. Like I said, it's very provocative. Uh, people will, a lot of people who, who would read this book would be offended by number parts, uh, would certainly be provoked by a lot of parts. There are places where you're going to disagree with what he says. And those places where you're going to disagree are precisely why you should read this book. So yeah. this is a this is a worthwhile one. Uh, I should also mention the audiobook version of this is uh, is is quite good. Uh, I, I thought it was well delivered. So uh, so if you uh, and and it's a it's a good one to consume that way. So if you're if you're interested in it but don't have the time, the audiobook version, which we can link to uh, via the uh, uh, the show notes, is also uh, is also worth uh, worth taking a look at. So um, so yeah, that's my my general uh, my general takeaway as well. So given that. That'll do it for us today. Now, before we get out of here, just a reminder, you can follow along with us in all the books that we're reading at booksoftitans.com. You can, of course, ping us on Twitter, Instagram, at Books of Titans. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all of our past iTunes through Apple Podcasts, the Android Marketplace, or your podcast manager of choice. We both prefer Overcast. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us effusive five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, especially lots of, or whatever uh, whatever podcast manager you use uh, and uh, and share your favorite episodes on social media. We also have a Patreon account if you are getting a lot out of this podcast. So uh, uh, you can you can support us that way as well. Uh, we'll be and back one soon. More, when, one more thing. Yeah. Uh, we are now also on Facebook. Ah, yes. Also if on Facebook. Your, Forgot about that. Your your place of choice. Yeah. 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 Some people, some, some, some grandparents out there, you can you can do that one as well. So uh, we'll be back soon to discuss the next book. And uh, I'm not exactly sure which one that's going to be, but uh, on behalf of Eric Rostad, this is Jason Staples. And this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep improving. And keep it real. Thanks for listening. All right. Yeah, that that was helpful. I made this.